What's the message? Love is the message. Hello and welcome to Love is the Message, a podcast about music, dance and counterculture. I'm Jeremy Gilbert and I'm here as usual with my friend Tim Lawrence. Hi Jeremy. Hi everyone. And we're carrying on from our last episode, which was really about proto-disco, just meaning, I mean, proto-disco is just a term we're using to mean music that sort of immediately precedes the emergence of something you can call disco music proper, even though none of those terms can be used properly or with any strict accuracy and so today we're going to be talking about the emergence indeed of something we can identify as disco music uh, 73 to 75 so tim how what's a how are we going to get into this i think we can get into it by me just like realizing that the term proto disco is kind of okay isn't it uh it serves a function but the thing that that I'm just kind of worked out what it is. I'm not that. Why I have a slight reservation, uh, and it kind of it's because it it always is always telling the end of the story, and the end of the story is disco. It's as if that's the conclusion that everything leads to disco. Oh, yeah, that's uh, true. Yeah. But we could sort of you know in a way what I'd much prefer to think of this period, which uh, ran from you know beginning of 1970 through to, at the very least, the autumn of 1973, let's say. I just prefer to think of this disco as not as, as not having a name. If we think of it as proto-disco, we're already kind of saying it, it all leads to genre. But the beauty, the excitement, the thrill uh, of this period was that it was kind of, you could bring anything into this scenario that would work on the dance floor. I mean, there's, there's probably something illogical about what I'm going to say, and that is that I like the provocation of calling Soul Makosa by Manny Dibango the first disco record, because clearly that's just challenging assumptions about disco. But I'd feel a bit, unne- I'd feel a bit uneasy about calling it a proto-disco record, because it's, it's assuming that all it's doing, it's, its reason for existence is to feed into this, this, uh, you know, this. Yeah, I don't think that's, not. that's not illogical at all because, I mean, Soul Makosa, within a certain canon of music to which we're very committed, you know, as critics, as historians, as DJs, and as promoters, Soul Makosa has an absolutely iconic status. But I have never described myself as like a disco DJ. Yeah, of course. Like if somebody asks what kind of music I'll play, sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll try to gauge their level of musical knowledge. And if they know, if I think they know absolutely nothing, which isn't a judgment on them, like it's just a judgment on how how you know exotic my terminology can be without just sort of sounding alienating. Well, yeah, if I think they I know absolutely nothing, I'll say, well, sort of soul jazz and disco, mate, is what I play. Mm. But that's not how I think of it at all, really. And and the the term disco was never embraced by people like David. Like it was reject people try people in this kind of dance music continuum tried to get rid of it quite quickly from the early eighties. I mean, it's from the early eighties you start to hear people talk about dance music mm. as a sort of as a more capacious alternative. And so I don't think it is, you know, illogical really. Mm. You know, I also tend to think. I mean, it makes me think. I'm sure we'll come to this when we do more detailed stuff about punk but you know I I always have this line on punk which is there's two ways of conceptualizing punk including by people who think of themselves as punks and one is punk as a genre 
of music and one is punk as a moment a historical event Mm. which is why indeed pro, i mean proto punk and post punk are both now widely appreciated sort of categories of music um proto punk and post punk are both more capacious and more interesting historically and sonically than what gets categorized strictly as punk because mm. to some extent what happens when a genre starts to get codified is that it's it, it's about kind of limiting a set of possibilities so you have this sense that there are these kind of open possibility spaces which are the sort of thing before the event, the moment when the thing gets recognised and categorised, and also the thing, the spaces which occur sort of after it. Now, I think this kind of proto, the proto and post, I mean, it works for sort of disco in a way. Most of the dance music we're interested in is sort of post-disco, and then there's all this stuff we can talk about as proto-disco, but disco itself is just a sort of vanishing horizon. It just names a sort of, it names the event of indeed, as we said last time, people starting to list to make records which are purely intended to be heard on a dance floor. But it doesn't really name anything generic in a, necessarily in a kind of useful sense. But as soon as you start trying to identify it as a genre, you can only do that by leaving some things out, by kind of reducing it rather than it, rather than sort of expanding it. So, so I think it is. I think it is sort of logical in a way to be quite interested in the in, in proto disco and, and but also to be interested in that set of music but also to be, think it's problematic to assume this sort of teleology where the only it's only important because it's about to become disco it's exactly, obviously yeah and i think there's um i mean there's this piece i wrote this kind of, kind of i think it's coming out maybe later this year or early next year in some edited collection but it was i was asked to write an epilogue for this collection on disco i just say this try to say this briefly Love Saves the Day came out in early 2004. You know, time has moved on, thinking research has moved on, and I was asked to kind of, you know, write a set of reflective comments on disco. And one of the things that, you know, the argument came in three parts. And part of the argument was to say that, you know, on, on the one hand, disco was a, was a you know, a politically and, a, and musically radical movement. You know, it brought to the centre, it gave voice to cultural expression to many people who had existed on the margins of society, disadvantaged people, outcasts, people discriminated against. The crude summary is people of colour, women and queers, uh, in particular, formed the the disco coalition. But if if one then takes a step back from that and starts to listen to a lot of the, the music that has been kind of being reissued in the last 20 years, uh, the kind of danceable music from the 1970s and 1980s in particular, from Africa and, and, and from Latin America, you start to hear a, a lot of records that kind of, you know, could have worked on the New York dance floor or were being released kind of irrespective of that New York dance floor. And it did sort of occur to me the extent to which kind of on some level, disco, while being progressive for many American citizens of the outcast of society, did end up becoming this kind of colonising force where all of these sounds from around the world, that many of which contributed to the sound of disco, end up being kind of subjected to it or dominated by it or subsumed from within it. And what we have left is this this kind of genre. I mean, it's also, of course, worth saying that once that the parameters of that genre are established, there's room for considerable innovation within that. And we're, we're obviously going to spend a fair amount of time looking at kind of how disco, you know, disco with a capital D 
um, produced many magnificent and and uh, musically progressive records. Um, so there's that as well. But it ended up also becoming something that also became de- too delineated. Ended up at, at one point, in particular, the 1978 and the early 1979 becoming kind of, you know, emphasizing the repetition rather than the innovation. So all of these things come to the fore. But um, Also, I guess with respect to disco specifically, it seems to me, at least as far as I know, but nobody who saw themselves as having a sort of countercultural, critical or sort of political, you know, implicitly political agenda ever sort of waved a flag for disco, saying disco is what I'm into, disco is the movement I'm part of. Like people- I, think, I think early on there was some of that. I mean, someone like David was always reluctant to name anything. He didn't even name the loft, basically. So he yeah, wasn't going to yeah. be a star to invest himself in. in, in and he was also very suspicious of, of the music industry. But he also loved music. Uh, and he wanted DJs and human be- other human beings we can include DJs within that category of being able to access this music. So he was kind of had this. Yeah, he saw himself as is, is involved in 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 a project. But was there anyone, were any of these sort of key DJs or producers who would have seen themselves really engaged in a project and would and would have named that project disco? Yeah, I think. Well, whether they would have thought of the entire project as disco. I mean, for example, you know, the private parties in particular kind of did to, to a certain extent pride themselves on the range of sounds that they. Were. Yeah, but that's not but, what I'm asking. I'm yeah, asking well, someone like Nicky Siano, probably yes, for example. Yeah, I think the early on di- disco was seen the the early perception. Um, and this was also experienced by by David as well and Steve DeQuist and all these other guys, is that this new sound was coming through. People wanted to buy it. People wanted to dance to it, but the record companies weren't supporting it because they didn't really like it. They were into rock music. So the, the sound itself was being marginalised and being discriminated against, and there was a fight to kind of have it recognised. Um, but the, the 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 problem with disco project, if you like, came when it when it just the company started to kind of industrialize the production processes um, and the music start and started to eventually bypass the dance floors. Uh, but we're going to come on to talk about this in in some considerable detail, obviously. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's an interesting contrast with sort of house music for me because house music's sense of itself as having a mission almost almost out of all proportion to any sense of what its mission actually was <laughs> you know is really strong part of sort of house music discourse for years and years like from from the moment people start to name it um we and that seems like a sort of interesting contrast in a way i mean in in a way because because obviously that doesn't even if there is an early sense of a sort of disco mission that's associated with the name like it, mm. it doesn't seem to last that long and and it, and it becomes about escaping the name like, quite soon. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, mean, we, we, I suppose maybe this is partly due to the, the fact that house music never became popularised on its own terms in the United States. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I, mean, I was thinking... not, not remotely having the success of disco. I mean, you can't even compare them. No, no, exactly. It's it's, ne- it's never taken up as a marketing category by by a big American record company. Yeah, so it's yeah. kind of mar- it's, its marginalised status has been kind of secured uh, by the tastes of the wider, you know, US music industry and public during the, from the mid 1980s onwards. I mean, house music got completely swallowed up by rap music and rock music, basically. Uh, not swallowed up, it got squeezed. Um, 
let's yeah, go back to let's go back to um, let's go back to this kind of the beginnings of what we we think we can probably call disco with some degree of safety, um, and uh, the trend, the kind of I suppose kind of in a way this sort of key transition I think kind of in a way is take is takes place in the kind of clearest way at Philadelphia International. Uh, it's this label set up. Uh, by Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff in uh, 1971. Um, their first song um, to be released on the label was Backstabbers. Uh, it was penned by the team of Gene McFadden and, and John Whitehead. Uh, it was this. It was a kind of soul record. It was, a, but it was one one of the things that it kind of clarified this first release on Philadelphia Records was the way that it was that soul itself was mutating. And this was a kind of sophisticated, jazz-inflected, in some respects, orchestrated, to, to a certain extent also funkified form of soul music that, that came to capture what was initially the kind of unique selling point, if you like, of Philadelphia International Records, which was that it would kind of, it, the, the records were soulful, uh, they, had a, they had a definitely a danceable element, but they also had this very powerful message. Uh, I think it was the OJs that would go on to release a record that, that was titled "Message in Our in, in Our Music." Um, so this was kind of absolutely key to uh, the kind of early Philadelphia international aesthetic. So before we get uh, we go too far into this argument, let's start. Let's just listen to the opening uh, refrains of of Backstabbers, which is you know perhaps one of the greatest intros to any record of, of all time. <laughs> Well, Backstabbers, yeah, I'll just say it's a, yeah, it's a real classic and it's a kind of iconic classic indeed of the dance music tradition. It's been sampled God knows how many times by house, house producers in the subsequent decades. And it's really, um, you know, it's a kind of a, it's got this dark political theme because it's, it, it's about, you know, it's a song about disillusion with the political leadership of the sort of black community, really, which was becoming a feature of, uh, civic politics in Detroit and Philadelphia and Chicago at this time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the backstabbers, I think the lyrics are ostensibly about a, a, a man who's going to have his, his girlfriend or partner, you know, taken away by some friends. Uh, so the friends are the backstabbers. But of course, the backstabber also refers to Nixon uh, as the kind of Watergate kind of scandals was coming to light in this, this kind of period. And there's also Senator Daniel Moynihan, uh, around the same time said that African-American men were responsible for continuing the cycle of black poverty. Um, so this was, there was kind of, you know, there was also, there was just a sense of, you know, this is post-civil rights, a sense of being, you know, the black community being stabbed in the back by the political establishment that had seemed to offer, offer them so much. Uh, I mean, the, the you know, the, the thing that's impressive, you know, one of the many things that's impressive about this record is indeed how it sort of avoids sounding preachy. It's got these socially aware lyrics, but the sound is, you know, soulful and also uh, complex. Vince Montana, when I interviewed him quite some time ago for Love Saves the Day, 
Uh, he told me the Philly sound was a takeoff of Motown, only more sophisticated. And indeed, I think that there's some, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it may well be that Backstabbers was played by some DJs in some spots. There's no way of, of knowing the entirety of music played on the dance floor uh, throughout history, of course. But it's never, I never heard of it particularly being kind of a dance record. It was just, it was kind of, it was just, we selected it because it kind of captures this kind of the Philadelphia sound and ethos so perfectly. But it's kind of really interesting to then look, you know, to compare something uh, like Backstabbers to a record such as The Love I Lost. The love I lost. This was a record recorded by Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. They'd already recorded Bad Luck, actually, which was a really electrifying track, but was kind of, uh, it was shelved by Gamble and Huff. And uh, when Gamble and Huff uh, went into the studio to produce The Love I Lost, they wanted to produce it as a slow number. But the uh, the, the produ- uh, producer Bunny Sigler kind of remembers how you know the, in the studio that day uh, nothing was basically happening with the recording, and at one point the three core musicians to the Philadelphia session lineup: uh, Ronnie Baker, the bass player; Norman Harris, the guitar player; and Earl Young, the drummer, uh, who came to be known as Baker Harris Young, and were the kind of core rhythm section. Uh, uh, trio at Philadelphia International whose sound in many respects kind of went on to shape the sound of disco when it kind of did finally emerge they just kind of you know they had been already playing together and they just kind of picked up the rhythm in the studio effectively Um, and Earl Young in particular the drummer um, you know innovated um, uh, you know well I don't want to say innovated the four on the floor on this record but he played a four on the floor bass beat on this record and it sounded different to a lot of the times it had been tried previously. Uh, Motown's four on the floor, of course, was kind of on the snare um, and the, the the bass drum with Motown was often more of a kind of heartbeat sound, the da-dum, da-dum sort of thing. Um, but Young wanted to take the four on the floor um, to the bass um, so that he could work different patterns on the cymbals. And this is basically... It's not on the floor if it's not. Sorry, play. it's not on the floor if it's not the kick drum. Like four on the snare. Four, four. Yeah, okay. four. fair enough. It's only four. It's called four to the floor because the kick drum is on the floor. You hit it with a pedal. So, so um, it's the bass drum. Yes, it's the bass. It's the bass kick drum playing a beat on every beat of the four beat bar. Yes. So yeah, so the you know there were some other records that are kind of arguably sort of edged to what you know. There's sometimes people like Eddie Kendricks, and we mentioned this in the last episode. Eddie Kendrick, we talked about it in earlier episodes as well. Eddie Kendricks, girl, you need a change of mind. It did have a four on. It had a a, a four on the floor. Uh, the bass drum was keeping the the four four, and it also had two breaks, and it had crescendos. But the four, the four on the floor with with the Eddie Kendricks girl you need to change change of mind. It's it's not really audible. No, but I'll tell you what's interesting. I've always thought that because, and I've only ever played it like on in on vinyl, like an audiophile system. But mm-hmm. I was listening to the episode 
of our podcast, of this podcast, on my bike, on like Bluetooth headphones, on a, you know, an MP3 file mm. last week, um, the, the episode where we played it, and I could hear it quite distinctly. I'd never heard it that distinctly before. It was kind of weird. Mm. Um, I was thinking, oh, yeah, it is. I hear it now. It's kind of strange. That's really strange. I don't know what to make of it, but it's interesting. If you listen to like tempt- <clears throat> the Temptations, Law of the Land, which is released in January '73, uh, it still comes across as a. It's, it, somehow the aesthetic still feels like soul music. Uh, maybe it's partly to do with the lyrics as well, partly. Uh, but this, the four on the the four on the floor, there, it's a thud. There's something that happens when dis when disco f- properly announces itself, where the four on the floor just becomes kind of you know. It's sort of it's troubling to many people in that particular historical moment who think you know who respond to this rhythmic innovation in the way that they've responded to many rhythmic innovations across the twentieth of the century, responding in some kind of horror, this tribalistic music where the body is taking over is taking over the kind of rational senses. I never quite got that from the Eddie Kendricks, you know, maybe I'm listening in the wrong sense. No, no, sure, there. sure. There's something when, when it really happens, then it's kind of, it's, I mean, it's something that people get very upset about. A lot of the kind of the reaction against disco is when this becomes too, too much like a metronome. You know, it's too dominant, right? Well, it's partly about this fear of the machine, isn't it? The machine of the music becoming machinic, which, it, which is, again, is interesting. It's this, cro- it's this cross generic theme of this moment. Because this is it's exactly the same moment when the German, you know, sort of psychedelic rock acts like um, the you know who would uh, Noi in particular come to be known for what they call their motoric beat, you know, the 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 driving rhythm, which is supposed to evoke the sound of kind of driving down the autobahn. And so there's this fear of this sort of machine likeness, but it's also like you say, it's also a fear of the sort of trance inducing quality. Of this, of kind of repetition, kind of too much, too solid a repetition, isn't it? It's both those things at the same time often get overlaid, overlaid on it. Yeah, there's that Walter Hughes piece in the Empire of, of the Beat that talks about the the, dis, the disciplinary kind of impetus of of the disco beat. On some sort of level, the dancer loses her or his or its agency on the dance floor when the disco beat comes along. It shatters the boundaries of the body. It's it dry. It takes over the kind of how a person experiences their body. You're, it's kind of like you're possessed, really. Therefore, you lose part of your humanity, according to some kind of classic Western liberal framing of what it means to be human. Um, and you enter into something which is shaped by you know music and, and crowds and interconnection. So anyway, this is something that comes to the fore here. I suppose I mean I'm just reflecting on this now. I guess it's. You know, if the Temptations had kind of and Norman Whitfield, the, the producer of, you know, had written Law of the Land, but the lyrics had been The Love I Lost. You know, if you just think about those two lyrics, the way they contrast with each other, maybe we would be kind of choosing uh, the Temptations recording as being the one that we were focused on. It's also true we played the Temptations recording uh, in, in another previous episode. I think what we're really saying with all of these records is they're all circulating in this period and uh 
they all in varying degrees kind of have elements that are working on the dance floor. Um, but yeah, but with the love I lost, this is sort of this sort of becomes a recognisably kind of um, disco record, I suppose. Um, I think I'm just trying to remember when it was also first released. Uh, yeah, se- September 1973. So this is released uh, for just to link back a bit to the last episode. It's released the same month that Vince Letty writes his Rolling Stone piece. These records are starting to really come through as 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 the culture is also being recognised in print by by Vince. I mean, the Temptations was was played by David and it was played by Nicky. And Nicky included in his his gallery uh, compilation released in Soul Jazz uh, quite some time ago now. I don't know if David particularly played the Love I Lost. I didn't. And he never told me that he did particularly. It doesn't mean that he didn't. But um, but it was a huge record for Nicky at the gallery. Uh, I mean, that was how Nicky described it to me. Nicky said, Earl Young was responsible for the disco sound more than anyone else. It really caught on. And Philadelphia and, and Philadelphia International produced hit after hit after hit. Yeah, well, I think there's a good, there's a good case to be made that's still what most people will think of as characterising disco. It's this combination of the four to the floor, kick drum, the big chorus and the big strings. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the, the strings coming from the strings coming from Philadelphia, the big chorus really coming from gospel soul, mm. and and the bass and the the four to the floor really being a kind of innovation, and um, and that is what really what characterises it. I think that's why you know it's a really good example. This Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes record yeah. is a really good example of it, and it is. I mean, I I, I mean I um, you know I love DJing this kind of record. Everybody get you know everybody's heart, hands go in the air. You know every the floor fills up like everybody loves it i mean one of the things that characterizes sort of disco as generic disco as most people would who are not kind of you know nerdy experts on this stuff would recognize it is that it does have a it it, you can talk to any kind of working dj you know to to this day and they'll tell you this stuff it's not going to please every crowd but it's going to please more crowds like around the world than any other kind Mm. of music and there's something about, I mean, that formula of like, like the big chorus, the strings, with the, with these very sort of transcendent elements with the kind of very easy, easily danceable, but very insistent, very physical, very corporeal, you know, uh, four to the floor beat. It, it's, it works in a particular way, like for more people than anything else does. We're making this podcast because we believe that alternative history and radical ideas should be given as much airtime as possible, yet it's increasingly difficult for knowledge of this kind to circulate through the mainstream media or the university sector. We love doing it and we're committed to making sure it's available for free to anyone who wants it. But at the end of the day, for us and our producer, Matt, this is what we do for our jobs. This kind of work isn't just a hobby and we've each permanently lost a significant chunk of our regular income due to the pandemic. We won't be able to carry on doing this without some financial support. So if you have the means and you like what we're doing, please consider supporting us via our Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. Thanks. Without music, life would be a mistake. You know, Philadelphia is really, uh, it's kind of the centre of the universe for many DJs in, the, in this period. Um, there's just like so many stories of, of DJs 
label heads, you, you name it, kind of turning to, to this output from Philadelphia International, checking the names of the musicians. We heard in, we heard, you know, just in a, an episode or two ago, how Ken Carey at Sal Sol kind of, you know, um, checked out these names and realized that it was Baker Harris Young who were kind of on the name, whose names were on all the records that he loved and, you know, ended up bringing them to the kind of Sal Sol uh, stable. Um, so Philadelphia is this kind of is is this key reference point, um, and at the end of 1973, so just a couple of months effectively after the release of the Love I Lost, Gamble and Huff uh, release an album by the house band at Philadelphia International, who are known as MFSB, uh, which stands for Mother, Father, Sister, Brother. Uh, but was internally known by some of the musicians in their more discontented moments as being motherfucker, son of a bitch. Uh, MFSB are, are... It's a great swear word. It's the disco swear word. <laughs> I like to use... I like to say MFSB when I'm angry. <laughs> are you feeling angry now, Jeremy? No, I'm not feeling angry. <laughs> okay, <now>. good. <laughs> You're not going to give me the MFSB. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's great. Well, anyway, so that's uh, that was a great. That's I really always enjoyed that story. And uh, so MFSB released this album, which is I'm pretty sure is called. I'm, I'm blanking for a moment. But it's called Love Is the Message, I think. Um, and Love Is the Message is is the record that DJs, in particular David Manguzo and Nicky Ciano, and then all of the kind of you know the DJ community who kind of seem to kind of you know revolve around them for a, 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 during this period of the. 73 74 75 david mancuso and uh nikki siano will almost immediately as soon as they hear they get turned onto the album start to play this record love is a message and we talked about love is a message we even named our podcast after love is a message um but actually love is the 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 hits on that album officially was tsop the sound of philadelphia and this was basically, and it's released at the end of 1973, it's a straight-up disco record. I guess it's worth mentioning at this point that although we would now, I'm now calling this, a, or we're calling it a straight-up disco record, the word disco is not yet in circulation as such. Uh, if you go into a record say, store and you say, I want a disco record, the chances are people won't really know what you're talking about. You know, Vince's article, which talks about discotheque music, it's only been out for two months, and it's not it's not widely accepted or under or recognised yet. So this is all in the air. It's not quite being named, but it's clearly consolidating as a sound. And with TSOP, uh, the the kind of the aesthetic really was much more pop oriented than Love Is the Message. Love Is the Message was uh, deeply jazz inflected. It was orchestrated. It was uh, explorative. Uh, it was mesmerizing. Uh, you lo- you could lose yourself in in the record. It was very sophisticated in some ways, to uh, in, in many ways really. Something like TSOP is just a kind of it's a banger basically. Uh, it's a nineteen late nineteen seventy three, early nineteen seventy four banger, and it's got this kind of it's got the the thud of the four on the floor, and it's got kind of fairly kind of it's a fairly manic and uplifting strings and voice and it's kind of it's it's kind of it's almost about disco it's kind of there's almost a sense on this record of disco's peaking too soon in a sense uh announces itself too quickly everything gets rammed almost into kind of one track uh, and maybe it's a bit maybe it's a bit too much i think maybe the the thing the thing about it for maybe for me is it's just a little bit 
and you know the, the DJs of the of the era uh, long before me found it a bit bit too pop bit too poppy really it carries like uh, a lot of notes of a sort of e- you know 60s easy listening mm. you know sort of pops literally when people would talk about uh, pop you know pops orchestras you know playing light light classical and light jazz exactly you know, it's a bit like that yeah. but it was picked up as the theme tune for soul train exactly well not only it was actually commissioned i think it was commissioned even by don, Where was it? don cornelius yeah but yeah anyway so soul train was obviously the most popular kind of african-american sort of you know music show at the time but it's the only it was the first nationally syndicated black music show in the states and it was the only one for a really long time and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Really, completely iconic within kind of black american music culture yeah 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 so you know so there was, was a kind of televisual accessibility you know was was neat it was like it was a theme song for a for a tv show basically and we know how those go generally speaking uh you know they have to declare themselves pretty quickly and in a kind of very accessible kind of way um but you know, it's worth. It's kind of definitely also worth mentioning for on this record that the three degrees kind of do the singing. Um, it's, it's also worth noting, really, that the message in the music changes, whereas the love I lost still carries kind of a soul, a kind of a, a soul message, you know, of lost romance. Um, for example, TSOP uh, has kind of clipped slogans as lyrics. Really, it's getting hard. It's time to get down. So it's a different kind of lyric. Basically, I think the suggestion is, you know, the message kind of shifts away from the lyrics in a sense. The message shifts to the kind of experience of dancing and what the, the role the lyrics play. Uh, in a way, I guess, and, you know, maybe this is partly related to funk, is they just become part of the, the rhythmic uh, ensemble, really. All of the effects that are trying to encourage people to kind of dance harder. Yeah, I've always thought of it as basically a funk lyric, a funk funk vocal really mm. yeah okay let's hear it let's listen to this record uh, TSOP by MFSB Tune in, turn on, get, get down. down. I can say, uh, to the best of my knowledge, I think this claim has definitely been made by uh, some journalists or popular historians. Don't we haven't never bothered to check if it's actually definitely true? But the fir- the f- the claim has been made that the first disco record to chart in Britain was uh, George McRae's "Rock Your Baby." Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Huh. I don't know how one would classify. I don't know how. Well, we'd have to check if any of these other. We should have checked that, really. Well, I know that no. I, I haven't checked Britain, but I do know in the United States that uh, the Hughes Corporation uh, rock the boat uh, got was got to number. I don't know what was released first, but rock the boat uh, got to number one before George McRae's "Rock Your Baby." Uh, I don't know if that means it was definitely you know what the what the sequence was in in the UK. The, the point is that they were they were kind of they got, they were released around the same time, uh, and they both got to number one the same summer. They were successive number one singles, 
we just ended up choosing to focus on uh, or listen to George McRae's Rock Your Baby rather than the Hughes Corporation kind of record. But they, on some level, they were understood to be, you know, a little bit interchangeable. They were quite similar sounding. They still sound like kind of soul records, really. There's a sweetness. They've got a, a kind of lulling, a kind of lulling rhythm, and to a certain extent, but they are punctuated both of them by again this kind of rather dramatized four four on the floor uh, beat um, that kind of is sounds new to the to the American public, and it's kind of when these records go back to back in the summer of 1974 that kind of people realize that something new has emerged. Um, so we're kind of playing this in part just to kind of mark that moment when um, there's a there's a kind of understanding uh, within music journalists writing in the United States and you know uh, record buyers and the, you know general public that a new genre is ar- arriving and it kind of it sounds a bit like soul music but it's also got some distinctive elements. I mean, the other thing that kind of uh, wanted to sort of mention about the George McRae Rock Your Baby um, is that it's a very early release. Uh, I'm not sure if it counts as, uh, I'm, I'm, I don't know the TK catalogue well enough to, make, to be sure of this, but I think it might count as a, one of the very earliest, if not the first release on TK records. TK did really needs, we, we often spend a lot of time talking about Sal Sol and Prelude and West End when we talk about kind of the key independent labels of the 70s. But TK, in a way, was every bit as influential as those three, if, if not more so. I mean, to just say briefly, it was uh, founded by Henry Stone, who'd grown up in, in the Bronx, uh, had ended up kind of going to live in, in um, California, uh, where he worked, got ended up working in record promotion, went over to Florida, carried on the same work, but basically started also record, record artists that he was distributing uh, and promoting. Uh, and in 1973, started to record with this lineup, Casey and the Sunshine Band, that he had partly kind of put together. He knew these two guys who were kind of musicians. Uh, one was a songwriter. They were hanging around Harry Wayne, Casey and Rick Finch, it's Casey that forms the KC of Casey and the Sunshine Band, I believe. And they wrote this record, Rock Your Baby, um, but it was in a, the vocal was pitched uh, a bit too high for them to deliver it. And George McRae was in the recording, st- was in the studio at the time that all this was, was going on and basically picked up the vocal. So the backing band uh, of George McRae is basically Casey and the Sunshine Band that would obviously become this incredibly influential funk disco outfit uh, of the 70s. But uh, so they, they wrote the song, they, they, they write the, they play the music, but George McRae, uh, who was the husband of the vocalist Gwen McRae, uh, who would go on to have considerable fame within disco, George McRae delivers the vocal. So, uh, and it's, it's a kind of really uh, key early statement from TK Records. Love is, love is, love is the message. 
Okay. So, one of the things that's really distinctive about, you know, disco, insofar as we can use that term, is the, is the development of remix culture. You know, alongside the kind of dub producers in Jamaica, these are the these producers, the, the downtown disco producers, are the people who really start to experiment with changing and kind of reversioning, remixing records um, to get particular kind of aesthetic effects, in particular to accentuate the qualities which make them appropriate to playing on the discotheque dance floor. And generally speaking, I think most people would agree today that the probably the first really significant producer in America who was doing that kind of thing was this guy, Tom Moulton. So you're more of an expert on that kind of detailed history than me. Why don't you say a bit about Tom Moulton? Yeah, um, sure. So uh, one thing is he wasn't a producer, I guess. Uh, he was kind of, I don't know how he would necessarily describe himself, I guess as a, as a mixer. But this was, this was the kind of, this became the early role of figures like Tom Moulton, Walter Gibbons following kind of soon afterwards is that uh, records were coming through um, to the dance floor, uh, to DJs. Tom Walton wasn't a DJ, but he was he was kind of, he was in love with black music and he was going to the Sandpiper on Fire Island one summer and, and hearing this kind of emerging confluence of sounds. Um, and the DJs and the people who were experiencing this music would, you know, often love the music but sometimes they would wish that it could kind of you know it could be different in particular they wanted records to be longer and tom walton uh well he had a bit of uh, his kind of first foray um into the culture was effectively when the owner of the sandpiper asked him uh if he would create some uh tapes for the sandpiper uh mixtapes and tom walton kind of started to do this and they were reasonably successful, except you and I know from experience, and I think almost everyone tuning into this show will know from experience, the you know, a pre-recorded tape can't do the job of a, of a DJ. It can't respond. It can't improvise on the moment to what is, what's going on with the energy. Um, so there was a limit to this. Uh, I mean, we could note in passing that Tom Walton is often described as being a DJ, uh, as having DJed at the Sandpiper, but that's all. It's just completely wrong. You could say it's neither here nor there, but that was never what Tom Walton was about. He was he was primarily about the studio, and he actually became someone who was, uh, interestingly, maybe, you know, in, one of the, you know, perhaps, well, un, unquestionably, one of the most influential figures of the 1970s in terms of the rise of, of you know, of disco culture uh, and the sound of disco uh, and remix culture, the 12-inch single, he wasn't really that into kind of going out, actually. Uh, he was quite unusual in that regard. Uh, most people were, you know, always were doing both. But Tom was absolutely in love with the music and he would make a point of spending time uh, with a lot of the DJs and would share his mixes with the DJs. He became a Billboard reporter and wrote a, bill, a column for the Billboard's disco file when it eventually started. So he was influential in that regard as well. But anyway, his um, his he got he got involved in the music side of things in particular when he started to go around record company offices and basically complain to the label heads uh, that the records were too short. And it was uh, when he made it was when he went into you know into what was doing one of these rounds um, that he was given the opportunity to uh, extend uh, and mix. Don Downing's Dreamworld, 
it had been released, I think, towards the end of 1973, uh, but it was a shorter version. Tom got to make, uh, apply his handiwork to it in 1974. And this is, this is, the, this is when mixers, for want of perhaps of a better term, start to interfere, for want of a better term, with the work of the producer. And often the producers get to be unhappy about this, but the mixers understand the needs of the dance floor and they take, they start to, to edit and change the records with, with that in mind. So on, um, on Dreamworld, in an in a interview conducted years ago for Love Saves the Day, Tom told me um, that the, the record started out in one key and then modulated up. Uh, and he said, there's no way I could have extended the record by looping it back to the beginning in order to kind of take it forward because of uh, this modulation. Uh, Tom said, it would have sounded horrible. So he, he continues. So at the end of the record, I took out the strings, horns and guitar, and I brought up the congas and the bass. I let the groove run and then took it back to the original, the original modulation. It's basically the first studio design break. Um, and it enables him to kind of, it's introduced for him to, ex and it's also, it's, so you've got a break where there wasn't one kind of before, and it enables Tom Walton to extend the record. Um, eventually, this record is released on a seven inch. It's actually the Dreamworld mixed by Tom Walton is the A side, and that runs to four minutes 13, which is quite long for a single. And then the B side is, uh, is Dreamworld, the instrumental, and that runs to two minutes 36. We, we've had an example that we discussed uh, ultra high frequency in the last program where an instrumental of the A side was put on the B side uh, to help DJs. But here that's happening again. It's starting to happen quite a lot, but Tom Walton extends the A side and actually has to kind of scrunch up some of the frequencies, in particular the bass frequencies, in order to get everything onto one side of a seven inch single. So you get the longer record, but it doesn't really fit the seven inch format. So you have to kind of trim out some of the frequencies in order to make it fit. So this is the beginning of, you know, of someone who understands what the dance order wants, longer records and finds a way to do it. So let's hear Don Downing's Dreamworld. Okay, so that's one of the, the really early Tom Moulton disco remixes. And another one uh, from the same year, from 74, where it is his remix of BT Express's Do It Till You're Satisfied. So BT Express, I think if you're looking for a band, and indeed an album really actually, which sort of sums up, which is, expresses a, a kind of transition from funk to disco, sort of funk music, straight ahead, you know, forward-looking funk, on the point of becoming disco, then the BT Express album, uh, Do It Till You're Satisfied, is a sort of classic example. BT Express are a funk band from Brooklyn, 
who are often referred to just as, as a sort of as funk disco. I've, n- I've never seen them described actually without being described as sort of funk stroke disco, funk hyphen disco. And I don't know who else gets so consistently described in that way. So they do represent something. And again, it was a really early Tom Morton remix was their kind of the the title track from their album do it to the satisfied it, it was released on a seven inch in 74 in a kind of radio friendly three and a half minute version and then a sort of five and a half minute version for the dance floor sort of re-edited by Moulton. and i think they you know for me this is always a kind of a classic expression of this sense of you know the kind of the positivity of of funk funk's sort of um you know it's very positive very very determined character, if you like, becoming more urgent and more ecstatic for, for the disco dance floor. It's becoming, a, it's like it's kind of speeding up a bit and becoming, and it's slightly leaving, leaving the floor. <laughs> I always think of this as being sort of six inches off the ground. You know, it's slightly, and it's slightly dematerializing um, compared to the very earthy groundedness of like classic James Brown sort of hard funk. And the Tom, and the Tom, and the Tom Moulton mix really sort of, um, you know, it's it's pretty simple re-edit, I think, that mainly mainly makes it a bit longer and emphasizes this kind of danceable rhythmic quality. So not I mean, not a million miles away again from what's happening with with dub production, that you know, you're basically isolating the uh, the, the percussive elements, the rhythmic elements to make it really easy to dance to, and you're sort of accentuating that and um and and creating a sort of dance floor tool for the dj oh, absolutely i mean what, one thing to know about this is that the i think the original record was three minutes uh and tom Walton extended it to five and a half minutes so it's kind of dramatic you know what we were what we were talking about with the don downing was a kind of was a, a way of kind of you know finding a way to kind of extend kind of material that was kind of already there um but here there's a dramatic extension and uh, I think I think Tom Walton kind of introduces uh, an organ into the remix. Um, I mean, one of the things he told me about it was that the group hated it. They hated his mix. Um, yeah, really? You know, uh, they, they said it wasn't the way they recorded it and that it was unnatural. Uh, they, they were, I'm not sure of the history of the organ, but they were particularly upset about the way that uh, Tom used the organ. So this was a thing that became a kind of trope in the 1970s. You had the songwriters and you had the producers and the musicians and often the vocalists were also, of course, musicians. They wanted a record to sound one particular way. And then someone came along, a DJ or a remix or a mixer, and, and changed it for the purpose of the dance floor. The gr- and the group would often then kind of, you know, balk at the changes. Um, usually the, the argument would be best resolved in 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 re- in the kind of the retail sales figures and if a record sold really well uh the band and the producer wouldn't mind too much uh, and that was what happened with this with this particular record uh when they topped it went to it went to number one and it also it went gold so it was again it was you know it was it was done against the will of the producer done against the will of the band and the musicians and yet what the kind of what tom brought to this was a kind of an enhanced record uh, that became a classic well, I think it's understandable that resistance in a way with a band like BT Express because they've been a you know really hardworking sort of live band for years and partly under the influence of of, of people like the, the James Brown band and the JBs mm. as they became after they left Brown. You know those funk bands were very very proud of their ability to do this very very tight to be very very tight live and in the studio. So the idea that it would re- require 
some kind of intervention from a producer to create a sort of dance floor record. I think, you know, you can understand why they would sort of reject that or object to it. Of course. Um, and also these people like Tom and sorry, but you know, not only but people like Tom and then the future remixers, most of whom were DJs in a way that Tom wasn't, they had no they had no training in you know how to work in the studio. They had no ability to play a music well, they had ability maybe, but they had no technical skill and, and trained skill in how to play a musical instrument. So there was a real shock that these people would come in and kind of, you know, would start start to kind of interfere with these, you know, recordings. It was a hallowed process, right? Studio. The, the producer had become a kind of semi-godlike figure in, in, in many many situations. So, uh, and then you got the thing about this kind of ex- expanding the musical, often expanding the musical content uh, in really interesting ways. I mean, one thing to quickly note is that it's, as a res- it's partly as a result of BT Express going to number one that Billboard. Uh, and it's and it's kind of editor Bill Wardlow just sees that something is going on in disco that needs to be taken note of and, and arguably needs to be supported, um, and it's it's out of this that Bill Wardlow asked Tom Walton to start writing a regular disco column. One has already started uh, in Record World. Uh, it's a column that's uh, written by Vince Aletti called uh, Disco Disco Files. Um, and so it's out of this moment the billboard follows suit. And very quickly, Tom, uh, along with Bill Wardlow, gets caught up in an argument around Gloria Gaynor's Never Can Say Goodbye, uh, which was uh, recorded and uh, produced and recorded, um, I think, at the end of 1973 uh, and then came out around the cusp of 1974, running into 1975. I'd need to check the dates to be exact about this. Um, it was a kind of, uh, it was produced by Tony Bon Jovi, Meco Monado and Jay Ellis, uh, Media Sound Studios. Um, and it was a, became this kind of huge hit on the New York dance floors, but was also something that MGM uh, refused to promote. Uh, Tom told me MGM said it was a dance record and they couldn't care less. They thought big deal. So it's a fast version of a Michael Jackson song. Um, but there was something about this record that, you know, just became undeniable again. It was kind of, it was the, the DJs loved it. Uh, the dance floors loved it. Uh, the album on which it appeared, on which Never Can Say Goodbye appeared, uh, was, was uh, mixed by Tom Moulton. And the three songs on the first side were turned by Tom Moulton into a continuous 18-minute mix. Um, no one had done that before. And apparently, according to Tom, Gloria Gaynor wasn't very happy about it. Uh, uh, he told me when that when she heard it, she said, I don't sing very much. What am I supposed to do when we perform the song? Uh, and Tom said, you learn to dance. So that was that really. But there's something about this record that sort of somehow marks the arrival of disco. It's partly about is a, is a record that the, that the company didn't want to promote, but through DJ pressure and Tom Walton's column in Billboard, it starts to kind of, it gets more airplay and it gets to be recognised and it goes to, on to be a, a reasonably substantial hit. But it's also out of this that the New York's DJ also uh, create this mock ceremony in which they kind of crown Gloria Gaynor as the queen of disco. Um, so there's this kind of, it's a coming together and at the centre of this coming together, the person who's announced the kind of symbolic leader uh, is a black woman. 
um, and uh, and she's crowned by a, a predominantly queer crowd. And this record in particular, I mean, in some ways, like even more than the um, Harold Melvin record, it, it's really, it's sort of the, the completely iconic disco formula, including the diva, you know, including this, you know, soaring diva who, whose, vo- whose voice and whose kind of vocal technique obviously owes quite a lot to the kind of gospel influence, soul singing of of the people like Aretha Franklin, but it takes on this different quality. And she's probably the first example of this kind of disco diva as a queer icon, which is obviously really important. I mean, it's really important insofar as, you know, disco is becoming re- is becoming kind of recognisable as the first cultural, really the first cultural form. I mean, maybe, I mean, I was going to say the first form that is, you know, has a very um, definite association with gay men. I mean, arguably it's not. Arguably, you know, musical theatre did as well at certain points in its history. But that was that was closeted. It was much more kind of hidden. And this is after sort of gay liberation. This is after sort of decriminalisation. So it's really important for those reasons. And it's still, it's kind of interesting. I mean, never can say goodbye. It really is, it's, for me, this is a really seminal example of a record that... You know, our generation, like, we're really sort of taught to dismiss this kind of thing. Like, this was just sort of trivial trash. It was just, it was sort of camp. It was basically just like a Broadway musical song with with a, a show tune with a beat. You know, it wasn't the sort of record anyone would take seriously, even if you were into, like, electronic music and house, etc. And then sometimes around the late 90s, like, it starts to be kind of reconfigured and it starts to sound really sort of different. Although, interestingly, you know, it started to, you know... It, that's partly because, actually, I, I think that is partly because as the 90s progressed, and one of the great historical changes that takes place, for example, in British culture in the 90s is, is changing attitudes to, to gay people and gayness. Like at the start of the decade, it's a very, still a really minority position to not be just sort of explicitly homophobic. By the end of the 90s, it's completely socially unacceptable, at least among, say, young people with a university degree. So to some extent, the kind of homophobia that had always underscored that kind of dismissal of, you know, a whole continuum of cultural forms from, say, show tunes to, to this kind of music you know, is, is also not acceptable anymore. And, it, and it's, you know, it's heard as radical where once it was just being heard as as trivial. And um, and to some extent also, after, after kind of years of sort of, you know, hands in the air, sort of Ibiza, dance music what was also you remember it was it was also this really sexist term it was referred to as handbag house in the 90s handbag house was very kind of disco inflected kind of anthemic music you know it was it was music that would be considered acceptable for kind of young young women probably not from the professional classes with with on ecstasy but after having been exposed to kind of a few years of so-called handbag house, this record, you know, takes on a different kind of depth. You know, compared to most of those records, it has a depth and a richness and a, and a level of detail to the production, which is sort of really Im- impressive. And then, and then in terms of our sort of journey, you know, for me, this is a really good example of the kind of record that, well, also if hearing it on the radio is one thing. Hearing it on uh, the Clipshorns is a completely other thing. And there's kind of epic, it's not that it's the kind of, it's a record David would have played much, 
either. But you know, as soon as soon as I as soon as I had a pair of Clipshorns home, I was I was playing this kind of thing on it, and it's it takes on this kind of epic quality and this kind of multi layered quality, which is obviously what Moulton is kind of going for in the production originally, and it really has a, a very different kind of effect. And so you hear this on a really good sound system, and and it's it's interesting as well because it, it that's not the if you're playing this just on a rave club system like a mid nineties or even today industrial club system it doesn't work you don't have that depth you don't have that grain in the mid-range vocal frequencies but when you when you hear it on a sort of classic audiophile system it's it's completely irresistible so i guess you know we should just kind of spend a couple of minutes maybe reflecting on kind of where where we're at with with disco and the genre i mean on the you know we seem to be on the one hand we have the emergence of, of something which is um on some level gives voice to this minoritarian coalition um, that we've referred to, you know, several times over in, in this episode alone, I think. Um, and uh, it's it's progressive and it's about promoting, you know, a certain musical sensibility that occupies, barely occupies the margins in the American music industry. You know, the executives are not really interested in in supporting this music. They just want kind of more, primarily they want more and more rock hits. Uh, that's the music that they prefer and that sell, sells in greater numbers. Um, so in this sense, disco is a kind of liberatory kind of genre born on the dance floor out of the people who, who made up the dance floor. Then on the other hand, we're, we're at this point where already disco starts to, I don't know to what extent you agree with this, but disco is starting to be, as soon as it becomes kind of recognisable, it becomes this thing that can it's in danger of being repeated uh, or becoming something that kind of empties itself out. Um, I'm not sure how strong there's the feeling is within the kind of, let's call it the DJ community or the dance community at this point, that that's what's happening. But if we look at the records that we, we're kind of been covering in, in this particular episode and say, compare them to the you know records we listened to in, in the last episode, uh, we're already seeing a kind of, a, to a certain extent, a, a refining and a, 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 in a sense, a narrowing of sound. Um, I, I think this clearly opens up again when kind of you know f- further innovations come come through within disco, and we're going to return to this. But these are, these seem to be the stakes, sort of circa uh, mid nineteen seventy four through to the very beginning of uh, 19, maybe nineteen seventy five. Is this is this how you see disco in these terms? Yeah, definitely, yeah. I think it's, I mean, the thing that's going to happen that's unusual to some extent in the history of new and all marginalised music is how quickly it'll get commercialised, uh, how quickly there will be an attempt to commercialise it. But at this moment, in the mid-70s, you know, the end of the first half of the decade, yeah, I think that's an exactly correct description. (laughs) 